Today's Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 119, verses 1 to 8, and can be found on page 617 of the Church Bibles. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. This is the word of the Lord. Today's New Testament reading comes from Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, and can be found on pages 1234 through 1235 of the Church Bibles. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This too is the word of the Lord. Please join me in a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts for the hearing of God's word. Let's pray. Living God, help us to hear your holy word with open hearts this morning. Help us to hear so that we may truly understand, and in understanding that we might believe, and in believing that we may follow you in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. So to begin this morning, let me tell you about a dream I had this week. A dream that I can only describe as divine revelation. Ready? Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, good. We've got a yes. In this dream, I saw a man waving at me, waving at me, waving at me to come over to him. Pastor Mark, he said, 
Come to me, come to me without delay, for I have something for you. So, I started walking toward him, and as I got closer to him, I saw who he was. He was one of the sales personnel at our local Maserati dealership. <laughs> Benelli Automotiva, anyone know it? Badnerstrasse, right? By Letzi Grunt. Oh, come on, some of you must. It's the number two tram, goes right past it every day, right? All right. Uh, and this man from Benelli Automotiva, he was waving me into the showroom. And once I was in the showroom with him, he said to me this, Pastor Mark, we have a car here at our Maserati dealership that is destined for you. It's a Maserati Gran Turismo. And this car, trust me, he said to me, this car is for you and no one else. And the fact that it is for you and no one else has been, been, been made plain to us through a series of events here at Benelli Automotiva. And so what remains for you to do now, Pastor Mark, is to tell your congregation about this car that is destined for you and for no one else. Tell them, Pastor Mark, about this Maserati Gran Turismo so that they might do the right thing and raise 250,000 Swiss francs this week in order to purchase it for you. Tell them to do so without delay so that this very week they might do the right thing and purchase this car for you. And so, dear congregation, I have. <laughs> I've told you about this Maserati Gran Turismo that is destined for me and only me. And it's down at Benelli Automotiva so that, and I've told you that so that you might do the right thing, so that you might purchase it for me this week. All right, so what do you think about this little dream I had this week? What do you think about this little dream I had this week? What do you think about this little revelation that was given unto me. A bit too convenient, perhaps? A bit too self-serving, maybe? There's something about this dream that doesn't exactly pass the sniff test. Correct me if I'm wrong. Something about this dream, I think, and I'm sure you think so too, smells a bit rotten. But you can well imagine my reason for sharing it with you, right? I have, after all, a lot to gain from characterizing what has come into my head as something that has come from God himself. I have a lot to gain from characterizing it as divine revelation. And this congregation makes me a lot like someone in the ancient church at Thyatira who was also characterizing what had come into her head as a divine revelation. And in her case, too, as we'll find out, she had much to gain from purporting to having received a message from God. Who exactly she was and what she was doing, we'll look at in a bit. But let me just first review where we are in the sermon series in the seven churches of Revelation.
So if you've been with us this autumn, you'll know we've been looking at chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, in which Jesus gives performance reviews. He gives performance reviews to seven ancient churches. And in these performance reviews, Jesus discusses with each of these churches the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then he lays out a path forward for each church uh, for their life as a church. So far we've covered the churches Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Sardis, Philadelphia, which now leaves us with the churches at Thyatira and Laodicea, yet to cover. And we'll do Thyatira this week, and then a couple weeks from now we'll do Laodicea. So let's begin now our consideration of Jesus' performance review of the church at Thyatira. So as has been his custom, Jesus starts out the review of this ancient church at Thyatira by introducing himself. This is what Jesus says. He says, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Well, it's quite an interesting and unusual introduction from Jesus. And I would say, as someone reading it, not the most reassuring of introductions. Jesus talked here of being the Son of God with eyes blazing with fire, feet of burnished bronze. It's foreboding, don't you think? And for good reason, if it sounds foreboding to us, because when God pronounces judgment on his people in the Old Testament, the people of Daniel's time in the Old Testament, these are the words he uses. These are the words that Daniel describes of the judge to come. Daniel says this, his eyes are like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And then Revelation 2, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So it's a very similar description here of the one who's coming to bring judgment. So this does not signal good news for that church at Thyatira, Jesus' introduction of himself. As we've seen in the past, when Jesus introduces himself, he does so in very, very fitting and specific terms for each individual church. But perhaps surprisingly, given Jesus' introduction, his foreboding introduction of himself, Jesus starts his review of the church at Thyatira with something good to say about them. This is how Jesus starts his review. I'm looking at verse 18 now. And it's with words of praise it's the commendation part of the performance review. He says this, I know your deeds, your love, and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Well, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Jesus commends the believers in Thyatira for their love and for their faith, for their service and perseverance. And he also applauds the fact that they are doing more than that they first did. And this means they're, they're not a stagnant church. They're an active church. They're, they're a church that is in some way progressing in their work as the body of Christ. So that's, that's all really good stuff. But sadly, the good stuff ends in this review rather abruptly as Jesus now starts in verse 20 to give his complaint about this church. It's a criticism of this church, and it's a harsh one, one of the harshest we'll see in all the reviews. Nevertheless, I have this against you, 
You tolerate that woman Jezebel who called herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So a little explanation I think is necessary here. We know from this passage and other parts of scripture and in, in historical witnesses that something's happening there in Thyatira. And in fact, in the ancient world in general, but especially here in Thyatira, and specifically here in Thyatira, there's, a, there's apparently a powerful and prominent woman in that congregation who's leading other church members astray. Her real name is probably not Jezebel. She's just called Jezebel to signify what kind of a person she is. Well, what kind of a person is she, do we think? Well, many of you probably have heard of Jezebel from the Old Testament. What kind of person was she? Was she a nice person or not a nice person? Not a nice person, right? Uh, these days, I guess we would call her toxic. She was toxic. Rotten to the core. She was, you might remember, King Ahab's queen. And as queen, she would scheme and plot and connive and calculate and conspire to get her way, even if it meant murdering someone. Some of you might remember the, the story of Naboth's vineyard, right? She had a contract job in order to get a vineyard. In any case, whether or not this woman is actually named Jezebel in that church, it's immaterial. That she is a Jezebel, though. That she is a Jezebel. That's what's important. And so what we need to know first about this Jezebel, then, is that she was a woman of power and prominence, not afraid to do what it took to get her own way. But there's actually something probably more important we need to know about this Jezebel. And now let's return to verse 20. I'm going to read it again. And we find out that she's not just a Jezebel, any Jezebel. She is a self-proclaimed prophet. A self-proclaimed prophet. And this, I might suggest, adds a whole new dimension to the story of the church of Thyatira. Listen to verse 20 again. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So you see, a prophet in that time was someone who spoke on behalf of God to the people. A prophet was the person of divine revelation. A prophet took what God would tell her, in, in Jezebel's case, and then in turn tell that to the church, to God's people. A prophet was God's mouthpiece, his messenger. But apparently this prophet, Jezebel, was delivering a message which caused believers in the church to engage in sexual immorality and idolatry. And in this way, her message, supposedly from God, was actually leading people away from God. How? In what way? Well, again, a little bit more explanation here based on the historical circumstances. If you remember the Church of Pergamum's performance review from a few weeks ago, you might remember our discussion of those trade guilds, right? Uh, those trade guilds in the ancient world. 
Those trade guilds in the ancient world were a little bit like our modern-day trade unions. They were groups of tradespeople organized by their trades, uh, wool workers, linen workers, shoemakers, bakers, potters, leather workers, etc. And each trade guild had their patron deity, their patron god. So what was required then of each trade guild or trade union worker was that they meet together in the temple dedicated to that god of their trade union. And they were to offer sacrifices to that god. And they were to eat the meat that was, had been sacrificed to that god. And then after the banquet, after they had sacrificed to the god and eaten the meat that was sacrificed to this god, then after the banquet, it was time for some adult entertainment. Adult entertainment, not so much of the passive type historians have uh, uncovered, but adult entertainment, more of the active type, participatory adult ent entertainment, not a spectator event, a participant event. So in any case, according to historians, if these trade guilds with their pagan rituals were a thing in Pergamum, they were even more so a thing in Thyatira, to the point where it was virtually impossible to be in business in that town if you were not a member and good and, good and staying member of a trade guild, a trade guild that would meet in these temples and sacrifice to gods. So if you renounce that, you were probably out and you probably couldn't do what you had been trained to do. And now here's where Jezebel comes in. From what is suggested there, it seems that Jezebel was telling these folks in the church, in Thyatira, that they were permitted, actually, by God, to participate in these events in the temples of these gods. This because God had told her, remember, she's a prophet, a prophet, and so what she says is a message from God. It comes directly from him. She could tell everyone that she was receiving messages from God and what she might very well have been doing here is passing on this message from God that it was okay to participate in these trade guild activities in those pagan temples. That it was just fine with God if they did so. Which of course would have served her purposes as a prominent and powerful woman quite well. And she may herself have been running a business, a, a, a trade business. And so the freedom that she was giving the people to participate in these rituals, in those temples, well, it would have been good for her business, it would have been good for her standing, it was all good for this Jezebel figure in that church. This divine revelation she was purporting to receive not unlike the divine revelation I was purporting to receive at the beginning of the, the sermon. It would have been a little bit too convenient, a little bit too self-serving, and it wouldn't pass the sniff test, and it would smell a bit rotten. But of course, the people with whom she was sharing this revelation, they would have been oh so eager to buy into this revelation, wouldn't they? Because they too had livelihoods that depended on their participation in these rituals in the temples. And so they, had, they too had much to gain by believing Jezebel's words. And so it seems many were buying into that prophecy. 
that she had. And why not? Buying in could only help sales, help their financial situation. Okay, suffice to say, big problems there in the church at Thyatira. And now we hear the consequences for this church if they continue to go along uh, as they've been going. This is what Jesus says next. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. All right, we're not going to go line through line for this because I think the meaning is quite apparent here. This is judgment here. Judgment. Judgment if things don't change there in the church in Thyatira. Judgment for Jezebel. Judgment for those in the church who are listening to Jezebel and doing as she has told them to do. Judgment is the consequence for those who fail to heed Jesus' warning here. But as we read next what Jesus says, there's also consequence, a positive consequence, for those who haven't gone along with this Jezebel figure in the church. This verse 24. It's a positive consequence, something good. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burdens on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. So for those in the church at Thyatira who reject this Jezebel's teaching, God says he's not going to impose any burden on them, meaning he's not going to come up with any new uh, regulations or rules. He just, he just wants to continue them to continue what they're doing, continue to obey his commands that he's already given them. So that's the first positive consequence. Uh, two more positive consequences Jesus goes on now to mention. Positive consequences for those who actually Listen to him and not Jezebel. Here's the next. To him who overcomes, verse 26, to him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. Does anyone recognize those words that Jesus speaks here? They're taken from Old Testament scripture. They're taken from the Psalms. Psalm 2, actually. Psalm 2. This is what Jesus is promising to those who have not gone Jezebel's way, but have remained faithful to him. That someday they're going to rule with him in heaven. And this is something we find throughout the New Testament. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, some of you might be familiar with this verse. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, Paul tells Timothy, we will also reign with him. We will also reign with him. So ruling and reigning with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, new earth is promised to those who resist this temptation of Jezebel. But there's another promise here, another uh, benefit for those believers. Something more astronomical in nature, you might say. This is what Jesus go on, goes on to say about those who stay with him. I will also give him the morning star. The morning star. So what do you think that means? I think we all, well, most of us know that the morning star is the planet Venus. Is Jesus saying, hey, you're going to get the planet Venus if you uh, remain faithful? Well, not so much. Let me explain. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the appearance of a star was associated with the coming of the Messiah, 
Indeed, what was over Bethlehem when Christ was born? A star, right? A star. So it's thought then that this promise of the morning star to those in Thyatira who persevere in the faith, it's thought that this is a promise of receiving the Messiah and sharing in his victory when he comes. It's, it's a promise again about sharing in his triumph when he conquers evil and establishes his kingdom. The Messiah is the morning star and someday he will appear like a star in the sky uh, to restore this world and to rescue his people. Okay, so that's Jesus' review of the church at Thyatira. What's in it now for us? It's probably a question you've been asking all morning. Well, clearly the issue for this church in Thyatira is this woman Jezebel and her teachings. So I guess the logical question for, then, for us then as a church is who is our Jezebel and what are her teachings? Any guesses, any nominations? Okay, I've got your attention. That's what I wanted. Well, now that I've got your attention, I'll answer the question. People are slinking down in their seats. I'll answer the question. This question about who in our congregation is purporting to speak for God, but is not. And the answer is, of course, all of us. All of us, to a degree at least, myself included. You see, at root, the problem with this Jezebel figure and all her followers, the problem is that they, they've been embracing a version of God and his will that conveniently matches their already existing preferences and predilections. They're embracing a version of God and his will that conveniently matches their already existing wants and desires. When they say God says it's okay to do what they want to do in these pagan temples, it's a self-serving theology they've adopted here. A self-serving theology. One which allows them to be who they want to be and do what they want to do. Maybe sometimes like us, right? Many Christian thinkers over the centuries have recognized this tendency among church people, church people both on the right and the left, the liberal and conservative. These Christian thinkers point out that so often morality shapes our theology. Our morality shapes our theology instead of our theology shaping our morality. In other words, what we, what we believe in our guts to be right or wrong shapes our ideas of what God believes to be right or wrong instead of the opposite. And I think we'd have to admit that we're, again, all guilty of this sometimes, to a certain extent at least. We all interpret God's revelation to us. We all interpret his will for us as, as revealed in scripture and in the person of Jesus Christ. We all interpret it in a way 
that benefits us. Not always, but often enough, I think. We do so, we interpret Revelation in a way that allows us to live like we actually just want to live. To perm- it permits us to pursue the things we want to pursue. It authorizes us to be who we really want to be. As was the case for Jezebel in Thyatira. So let's just think for a moment, for example. Just think for a moment, for example, about how we spend our money or, or protect our wealth. Is this a result more of God's revelation or of our inclinations? Or how we define success or measure worth? A result more of God's revelation or a result more of our inclinations? Or how we view matters of human sexuality or relational fidelity? A result more of God's revelation or of our own pre-existing inclinations. Or how we treat the rich and famous compared to the poor and forgotten. A result more of God's revelation, or of our own inclinations. Or, thinking further about this, how we think about matters of race, equity, justice. They come from God's revelation, or our inclinations. Or think about how we involve ourselves in the life of the local church, what we choose to do, what we choose to emphasize, what we choose to value. God's revelation, our inclinations. Finally, think about what we choose to praise, celebrate, applaud in our conversations. Or conversely, what we choose to judge, condemn, vilify in our conversations. God's revelation, is it a product of God's revelation, a result of God's revelation? Or is it a result of our just natural inclinations? I think if we're totally honest with ourselves, each and every one of us, we'd have to admit that it's often our own inclinations that are calling the shots and not God's revelation as given to us in scripture and through his son Jesus Christ in his word. So related to that, let me just ask us all this. I ask you this as I ask myself the same. When's the last time you were truly convicted, truly convicted by the word of God? Truly convicted. When's the last time it slapped you in the face? punched you in the gut, knocked you on your backside? When's the last time it made you question one of your behaviors, test one of your assumptions, confront you or confront one of your opinions? Think about it this way. Does the word of God or does God, as he's revealed himself in scripture through his son, does this pretty much affirm who you are and the choices you've made? Does it just applaud for you and the life you've lived? Or does it sometimes test you, challenge you, try you? Does it challenge you to be different, 
to do different. You see, it's the human condition. It's the human condition to be what we want to be and do what we want to do. And then to enlist God to make it all good and holy. It's the human condition, right? But it has to be the other way around. It has to be the other way around. The good and holy that God is to, has revealed to us in Scripture, and particularly through his Son, Jesus Christ, this has to be our starting point and ending point for our assessment of what is right and what is wrong, what is just and what is unjust, what is true or what is untrue. This has to be our starting point and ending point for our assessment of what is beautiful, what is profitable, what is worthwhile, what is valuable. This has to be our starting point and ending point for how we think and how we speak and how we act. God's revelation has to be our starting point and ending point for how we live and how we love. And unlike Jezebel and her followers, we need to be able to choose and do what is inconvenient, unprofitable, undesirable to some. We need to be able to choose what is hard, what is difficult, and what might cost us dearly. We need to be able to do so so that we might be the disciples that Christ has called us to be. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, once again, you've given us tough words through uh, your servant John in this passage. We pray, Lord, that we would respond in faith and obedience, that we would respond in love and in joy to what you have told us today. Lord, help us to be the people who you want us to be. Help us to uh, have you call the shots in our lives and not we ourselves. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.